Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Tonight, a new sutra tonight, um, we're going back to some older material. Uh, we're going into the Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Asalayana Sutra tonight. But before we talk about it, there's some background information I want to give us so that when we read it, it'll make a little more sense to us. This sutra is sort of a famous Buddhist sutra for taking on a, this sort of social system in India that we now today call the caste system. So it's a famous sutra for the Buddha. Uh, it's basically just a dialogue between the Buddha and a supporter of this system. If you're not familiar with this system, though, then the importance of the sutra might be lost on you because... Um, well, because of the kind of the history and cultural importance of this system. So I'm going to lay out a few ideas before we jump into it. And so the first idea that I want to tackle is this idea of this caste system. So this is a very, um, oh, by the way, so this line I've drawn here, this is going to be like the, the land of India, the soil of India, out of which Buddhism grew. So everything we're, I'm going to be talking about for the first bit of this class is pre-Buddhism, pre-Buddha. This is sort of the culture that the Buddha was born into, the culture that Buddhism became in, like that it circulated in. Um, yeah, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about other forms of meditation that were around the same time as the Buddha. But first, this caste system. So if you didn't know, Indian culture, Indian society, the subcontinent of India for a very long time. Apparently, since even the days of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago. So, 500 BC, which is when the Buddha was and when the sutra's from. 600 BC, 1,000 BC, 1,500 BC. This social system goes way, way back. And the basic idea of it, and I want to preface by saying I'm in no, by, by no means an expert in this. I, Buddhism a little bit, but this stuff, no. So I'm giving you the 101 survey class intro to this stuff. It's far more complex than I'm about to tell you is what I'm saying. All right? uh, but what it basically looks like is that you have a social structure that's divided into these four varnas, which means coloring, to my knowledge. So these four class or castes, and these are sort of the four stations or positions you could find yourself being born into. And again, this is a system that goes back to the times of the Buddha, and it's still at play today. This is very important to make clear that in India, the social structure is still based on your family and your caste, and your social standing, your position, your social mobility, the possibility of mobility, marriage, who you can marry, who all of this stuff, where you sit at a table, who you shake hands with first, down to who you shake hands with left, all of this social structure is based on this old, old stratification. And this stratification depends on where you want to start, but it is traditionally 
in the form of a pyramid. And sort of at the top of this pyramid are a caste <coughs> called the Brahmins. Brahmin is usually translated as priest, but they are particularly these ritual experts in relating to Brahma. Brahma is God, the creator God, the sustainer of this world. The, uh, for all intents and purposes, the one that makes it rain, the one that makes it the sunshine, all of that. And so there's a notion in Indian culture that the whole universe or world is operating on, according to these, uh, uh, these kind of divine principles or rules. It's called Rita. Rita is this like this order that's going on. And there's a way in which the priests are in communication with God, Brahma, and through the ritual offering and making of the creation of the sacred fire and these elaborate ritual performances, the Brahmins, this priestly class or caste, is understood to maintain the operation of the universe. Their job is considered of the utmost importance for that reason that if they stopped doing their job, the notion is, is that the whole universe would start to crumble. And so they're maintaining a universal order, is the idea. They have a soul hotline to Brahma, and so if you are a Kshatriya, Vaishya, or Shudra, and you need to communicate with the gods, you need to communicate with Brahma, or Vishnu, or Shiva, or anybody, you need to go to, to a Brahmin because they, the, they know the mantras, they know the secret words, they know the secret rituals. So that's why they're at the top of the pyramid. Below them is this Kshatriya class uh, called the nobles. In our sutra, they will be called the noble class, also called the warrior class. In, even in the days of the Buddha, who, who, by the way, the Buddha was born Kshatriya, his father was a king, ruler of this region. And so he's sort of, what was once a warrior class turns into a political ruling class. Yep. Below the ruling noble warrior class, you have this uh, uh, Vaishya class of merchants or artisans, which is a very large category. And then below them, an even larger category of laborers. Shudras are the laborers. And by the way, you should know that within each varna, within each of these castes, there's subdivisions. So it's not just that you're a shudra, but then there's all the world of manual labor. What kind of manual laborer are you? And if you're like this kind of manual laborer, like you work, let's say you, uh, you know, you take out the trash in a nice museum or something, you might be up here. But as you go down the rung, you're getting closer to dealing with shit, death, whatever. And so the people that are at the lowest of the shudras, which would be the, the lowest of the lowest, are the people that deal with dead bodies. Nobody above them can touch them for fear of getting cooties, basically. <laughs> there is a word in Sanskrit. It's, it's all part of this. It's called jutta. Jutta is... I asked one of my professors, this sounds like the cooties. And he was basically like, yeah, it's kind of like the cooties. Because it's, juta is like, it's something, yeah, that if you shake hands with somebody of a lesser class, they kind of like, it rubs off on you. So there's this idea that it's like, yeah, they might have been like literally, you know, 
shoveling shit and then like, hey, now, nice to meet you. And you're like, well, I don't want to touch your shitty hand, right? But there's also just a way in which to be of this cast or to be of a low cast in there, you're just covered in it. You could take all the baths you want and you're still got it. And if I shake your hand, I'm still going to get it. And that's, again, where I raised my hand. I was like, that sounds like the cooties if you like, can't <laughs> like, wash it off, right? So this is the structure. Indeed, there is the notion of the outcast. And there's a way in which outcasts are tricky because, yes, there is sort of even a worse position to be in. Um, I, won't, I don't want to get too into it, but there's a way in which people can fall even outside of this and be completely shunned. So they're an outcast. But there's also a way in which if you as a foreigner come into this situation, you're also an outcast. And sometimes foreigners, outcast people, can be treated even above the Brahmins because they're kind of like guests. So there's a way in which outcasts, like, they fall outside of this structure, and so we don't really know what to do with them. And then we just make up our mind whether we don't want to have anything to do with you, or we think that your outcastness is sort of auspicious and special. And so a lot of times foreigners, it's like, oh, you're auspicious and special and you're not going to stay long, so I'll treat you to a good time. Uh, questions about this? Pretty basic. Again, this is the basic structure to this day. People of the Brahmin caste today tend to be the wealthiest, best, well-off. By the way, if you're born today in the Brahmin class or caste, it does not mean that you're necessarily a priest and that your father's a priest. These, these castes have become so hereditary over the years and years and years and years and years that, like, I have a friend, a friend of mine, he's Brahmin caste. He's a professor. His father was a, a diplomat, I think, uh, to Ethiopia or something like that. He was not a, a Brahmin priest. He did, did not train in the rituals. He did not know the mantras. But he was still of that caste because at some point in their family, they had a Brahmin priest, like an actual priest, I assume. Everybody follow that? From before the Buddha, for who knows when, at the time of the Buddha, and still to this day, this system's at play, and what, and what this system is said to be the manifestation of, in this world, is everybody's karma from their past lives. The idea being, if you were born as a shudra and you're shoveling shit, that's because of, of your last past life. Now, don't take that to mean that it was necessarily a punishment, because you may have been a giraffe in your past life, and you were such a good giraffe that you made it to the human realm. But you're not going like, to immediately get to go to be a Brahmin. You're going to have to start somewhere. So what I'm getting at is that there's a general notion of, I guess what would be called samsara, pre-Buddhist samsara, which is that the, the general life, or birth, life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth, this whole process, it's just souls, and again, this is not Buddhism, this is pre-Buddhist, it's just a giant cycling of souls, whether they be animal, 
specter, ghost, hell dweller, what have you, human being. It's all a big churning of souls. <laughs> and what samsara originally meant was, yeah, you get born a shudra, and if you're a really good shudra, then next life you might be born a vaisha, but then you're not a really good vaisha, so you flop down to a shudra, and then you're really not a good shudra, so then you're back into being a giraffe. But then you do the giraffe thing again, and you're back to shudra. You sweep those streets really, really good, then you get up to a vaisha, and then you make some really nice chairs, and you're the best you know, artisan of chair making, and so you make it up to the kshatriya, then you make it up to the brahmin. At the brahmin level, you have, if you do um, a lot, there are, for the brahmins, there's processes of meditation, there's processes of prayer, there's processes, all kinds of processes, and only available to the brahmins through Deep discipline, and I'm talking, you know, the idea is lifetimes after lifetimes after lifetimes after lifetimes, and then even lifetime after lifetime as a Brahmin, you could finally get out. Moksha. And I want to talk a little bit about this, but there was a notion of moksha, or liberation, from having to keep going, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a giraffe again, oh, I'm a giraffe again, around, 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 around. And the idea... Before the Buddha and before Buddhism, the idea was that this just keeps going around and around and around and around. That, and that even the gods eventually fall back down into being Brahmins and Kshatriyas and Vaishyas and Shudras and Giraffes and da-da-da-da. But the idea is it's just an infinite turning of this wheel of life and souls going around and around and around. Everybody follow me on this? Sir. I have a question. The untouchable is another word for outcast. The, the outcast, not the lowest shudra. Right. Okay. And then the second question I had was, was this at the time, and or is it now, pardon my ignorance, uh, related to like physical features and, and, oh, yes. and darkness of skin? Yeah, uh, thank you. The reason why these are called varnas, colors, is because, um, I should have mentioned that in the beginning, there is a notion that also in this is light skin to dark skin. This is a worldwide, apparent, a worldwide discrimination in some crazy way. So, yes, you should know that that's going on. And so that also caste can be determined through uh, skin tone. Yeah. All right. So the important idea here is, again, everybody's trapped in samsara going up and down, up and down based on their actions, their karma. Good actions, bad actions, right? And there's this little loophole which says that for this very, very elite few, and in many ways the elite of the elite, have access to this uh, liberation from the whole cycle. Okay? And of course, if you're a Shudra, <laughs> don't even think about it. Right? And then, of course, these outcasts or untouchables, would, it's unfathomable that they would even be, you know, they're, they're not coming anywhere near Moksha. So this is the social structure. And the idea, though, is, is that almost across the world, there is always this tension between culture and counterculture. The structure, the hierarchy, and then that which fights against that structure or that hierarchy. And so what I propose to you is, is that there has always been a, a, a kind of a an opposition, if you will, to this social structure. 
And that would be becoming what's called a, a sannyasin. Or the language of that Buddha, the Buddhist cooked up is shramana, shramana. Um, there's a few other words, but these words, sannyasin, shramana, they mean a renunciant, a renouncer. What have they renounced? What are they, what are they renouncing? This social structure. They don't want to have anything to do with this. They either don't believe this, or they think this is oppressive, or whatever it is. So there is the people that drop out, go into the woods. Now, from this point of view, those people are outcasts. These people don't care what these people think. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? So being an outcast is, is that's, so, so says you. These people have taken upon themselves to pursue other means to liberation. And so what I'm proposing is, is that, again, even before the Buddha, there was this counterculture movement that was founded on yoga, meditation. And this pre-existing counterculture meditation yoga movement had, again, had been around since who knows. I mean, some of the oldest uh, art, uh, archaeological artifacts that we find in India are these clay seals, a seal like they would have been stamped. Where they, I don't, we don't know if they were traded as money, if they were literally sealed, uh, like sealing things, but there are these clay impressions, round clay impressions, and they show uh, a full, you know, clearly full lotus posture being with horns, Full lotus with horns and then doing either kind of like mudras or like, the, you know, these kind of hand symbols. That's like the oldest representation of anything that people have found in India. People do it like cross leg. This, this is important. So this movement of what we in the West have come to call yoga or meditation or what have you. Again, it's a very old tradition that is a counterculture movement to this dominant Social system. So the horn is that because these people are heretics somehow? Like, no, 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 no. There's no. nothing to do. Like no, no, no. It was. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, nobody knows. We've we've found these things, and then there's people that give PowerPoint lectures on what they think it means. The most you know uh, persuasive PowerPoint lecture that I've seen is more about this sort of anthro like zoomorphic taking on the qualities of these things. So taking on, like the bull horns is like taking on the, the quality of a bull. How it gets complicated because there's this fertility cult that's associated with Shiva, who sometimes has horns. And so the bull, fertility, all of these ideas are mixed up on that, according to that person's PowerPoint presentation. Again, we don't know exactly what it is. Right. Around 400... AD. So now many hundred years, even after Buddhism, all of that, there was a guy named Patanjali. Okay? And he, and we don't know if Patanjali really existed. We don't know if, if there was a bunch of guys named Patanjali. It's complicated. But around 400 AD in India, there appeared something called the Yoga Sutras. And they were attributed to a guy named Patanjali. Sure, great. 
So you might recognize this word sutra, but I've said many times this word sutra is not unique to Buddhism. A sutra just means a discourse on something. These were 196 discourses on yoga that were attributed to a guy named Patanjali, but even Patanjali in 400 was like, yo, I didn't write this. I'm just gathering the wisdom of the ages together. So I want to make that clear too. So it doesn't even matter if Patanjali existed because even he was like, yo, this isn't my stuff. This is just what the, the wisdom is. And what the wisdom he presented was the Ashta Anga Yoga or the Ashta, the eight Angas. Anga is like an arm, it's a limb. So the eight limbs of yoga. Yoga is an interesting word. Um, the English word yoke comes from the Sanskrit word yoga, and the word means to yoke, to combine, or to join. That is the idea of yoga. Is that yoga, is that, that yoking, joining together? Some people say it's body and breath, it's the union of body and breath, some say it's mind and spirit, some say it's self and God, some say it's self and the world. You know, there's all kinds of ideas about what's being yoked or what's being yoged when you do yoga, but whatever. But the idea is there's this practice, and there was 196 of these sutras that laid out these eight limbs. And I want to go over these real quick because, A, a lot of people are already familiar with this, but I want to quickly show you the relationship to Buddhism. Because again, this is all pre-Buddhist. All these ideas were floating around India, and then the Buddha was born and drew from all this, and then we're going to get our sutra, right? Okay. The eight limbs of Patanjali's yoga system are here. The first two, and actually these are usually divided into the Preparatory. This, these first four are preparatory, and these are the practice. This is what we would call meditation, but it's also what we would call yoga, meaning that in order to prepare for this practice, there's a, there are a series of yamas and niyamas, what I would call the don'ts and the do's, or the do's and don'ts. There are five yamas, five don'ts, don't commit violence, don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, and don't have sex. There's five do's, five niyamas, a whole bunch of purifying stuff you do, everything from like enemas to, to swallowing gauze, like tons of gauze, and then pulling the gauze out, so you're like cleansing your esophagus. Like I said, enemas, every orifice, flushing, you know, like basically the... Nowadays, it's called a neti pot, but uh, <laughs> it used to be a lot crazier than just the, the neti pot. Um, another do in this system is being content, developing tapas or heat. This comes from things like fasting and austerities, and you actually build up a bodily heat. Um, study, and then this crazy idea of ishvara pranidhana. I talked at length about this one that I'm talking about. Uh, Avilokiteshvara. This is bowing down to Ishvara, bowing down to a deity. So these are the five things that you do do. These are the five things you don't do. Then you also practice your asana. And for the most part, this is yoga in America. Just, the, just this limb. 
just asana, downward dog, all that stuff. That's this section. And asanas, all of these poses, all like I did the Padmasana, lotus posture, all of these things. The reason why you would even do all the downward dogs and the stretching is to prepare for seated meditation. It was not an end unto itself, it was preparatory. Fourth is pranayama breath work, doing, doing kind of breath exercises, of which there are many. Uh, then, after you have done your preparatory practices, you move into the actual meditation practice. The fifth limb is called pratyahara, and the analogy is like a turtle, and the limbs of a turtle, the head and the arms draw in. Pratyahara is the withdrawal of the senses, so you're taking your vision and your hearing and closing them down and drawing in. Dharana is holding. This would be kind of equivalent to sati or mindfulness in Buddhism, but again, we're not there yet. I just wanted to hint to everybody that dharana does not get spoken about in Buddhism, but it kind of does, and it's this holding. And then dhyana, this absorption meditation, until finally samadhi, union. Union usually with ishvara, with that divinity. That was, that's the goal. This was progressive, meaning that this system that Patanjali outlined, it was to move towards a state of union with the divine, samadhi. That's what samadhi meant originally. Everybody follow me on this? The reason why I lay all of this out is, is that yes, this is all pre-Buddhist, and if you look at it the right way, Buddhism itself is a system of yamas and niyamas. The whole vinaya, the whole monastic code is don't do this, do do this. Clean your body like this and don't do that. So Buddhism has this. Buddhism never talks about asanas. They never talk about pranayama. They never particularly talk about pratyahara. Unless you include sati, they don't talk about uh, dharana. But Buddhism is really big on dhyana and samadhi. My point here is, the long introduction here is, is the reason why Buddhism and Buddhist sutras usually don't talk that much about asana, pranayama, pratihara, and dharana is because the assumption is you already know how to do that. You wouldn't even be bothering with Buddhist sutras if you were not already a dhyana, samadhi kind of master. So then Buddhism is like, oh, we got some samadhis for you. This is what we were doing last week. Boy, have I got some samadhis for you. And samadhis are amazing. But the idea is that if you don't, if you don't know that it's actually part of this much larger meditation practice, you might miss, a lot of people miss certain aspects of Buddhism because of this. It's assumed you already know how to do all this stuff. And then once you're already good at all this, bam, Buddhism has all kinds of stuff for you. So all I'm saying again is, is that Buddhism does not overturn this. It actually sort of assumes, yeah, this is how you do it. This is what we're talking about. Now let's talk. And again, this is a counterculture movement to this mainline culture structure. Questions? I was just wondering... Are these words Pali? I'm only working in Sanskrit. 
Okay, yeah. so is samadhi the same? Is like union some sort of form of the same definition as like concentration or focus? So, so if you're curious, samadhi and pali is samadhi, dhyana is jhyana, jhyana? I don't even actually know how to spell it in that, so I'm not even going to go down that road. Um, but isn't that samadhi the same word? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Samadhi is samadhi. Well, is, the, is that union, you know how sometimes there's like definitions that are sort of the same and they're just different facets of the same definition? And then sometimes there's a definition where it's like, boom, this is a different definition for exactly the same word. Mm -hmm. Is that a different definition? Yes, so I am giving you, and the reason why I want to give you this very general definition of samadhi is because this process, purify your, your, your body by don't doing this stuff and doing this stuff, prepare your body physically, prepare your lungs and your energy, your prana, Start withdrawing. So the idea is, is that you would withdraw all your senses, right? Find a nice quiet place, withdraw all your senses. Choose an object, whatever the object may be. Dharana means you hold that object, not literally like this, but hold it in your mind. And that's why I say it's not unlike the Buddha sati, mindfulness. Same idea, holding the object. Dhyana is this absorption where there. You know, things start to get a little blurry between me and said object. I'm, I'm holding it, but man, it's starting to feel like it might be holding me. There's this absorption. And then samadhi, or union, is when there is a union with the object that you were just concentrating on. And that state of union, samadhi, was it. So it is related to concentration. No, no, absolutely. I'm just getting that for this system, though, it was like, all right. Hold it, hold it, absorbed, absorbed, ah, samadhi. And like, that was it, samadhi. And it was like, yeah, just stay there, you got it. And so what I'm getting at is, is that there's something that makes Buddhism different. It, and the Buddhist definition of samadhi is a little different. This is a mainline yoga definition of samadhi. Union with the divine, you, you know, a kind of, dissolution of the self, period. They don't get into the minutiae and the little differences of this kind of samadhi and that kind of samadhi and think about that. Okay, any, yes? Uh, real quick questions about sannyasin. Yeah. Um, so they remove themselves from the caste system. Do they still believe in reincarnation? Or do they not? So, all of this is so grossly overgeneralized. Sure. Right. The idea is, is that in this system, moksha or liberation is only available to the elite of the elite. These people believe, no, no, no. It's available to everybody all the time. Okay. And they might still believe in reincarnation and that they've just found a way out. They might be really enlightened because there's a lot of like, you should know too that contemporaneous with the Buddha was a guy named Mahavira. And Mahavira is given the credit with founding a school called Jainism or Jainism. If you really start doing the, the, the research, it's like, whoa, was Mahavira, is that just another name for the Buddha? Is Jainism, like, it gets really complicated whether, 
Like, of course, the Buddhists say that Mahavira ripped the Buddha off. The Jains say that the Buddha ripped off Mahavira. And so there's this contention about who, who came first and all of that. But you should know that there's this whole other school that's, that arose, also counterculture, also based on yoga meditation and liberation. And both Buddhism and Jainism are kind of wrestling with the, this idea of reincarnation. And Buddhists and Jains are both kind of saying, like, eh, it's, there's kind of not reincarnation. It gets complicated, but... And we'll get... Well, I want to get to the sutra to get the practical um, importance of all of this. But, yeah, yeah, please. Shramana? Shramana. What's that definition of shramana? Shramana. Yeah, renouncer, renunciant. Okay, so it's another name for the same yeah, in particular, shramana has the connotation of homeless. In fact, the reason why I say this is because there's a sutra, it might even be in here, which is called the uh, samana pala or the shramana bala, which is the fruit of being homeless, the fruit of being a shramana. And shramana actually means like not having a home. Or, you know, but. Like as a chosen one? Yes. As opposed to in a situation. Absolutely. Okay. And so it has that idea of I've renounced having a home. Okay. Home free, if you will. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Any other questions, ideas? Okay. So, I think that covers everything we need to know going into this. Um, also, just one other little thing with this Ashtanga Eight Limbs. Uh, eightfold path, eight limbs of this, which came first. A lot of people are like, potentially just rip the Buddha off with his whole eight limbs, right? But then, of course, these people are like, the Buddhist ripped off Patanjali with his whole eightfold path. So just know that there was probably a dialogue going on here between eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, eightfold path, the fact that they're all talking about samadhi, dhyana, so there's a lot of overlap. And the argument or the question of, well, who came first and which one? I'm, I'm a Buddhist, so I don't think it matters in that regard, if that makes sense. Oh, I was just going to say, you said that this came before Buddhism. This was pre-Buddhism. So don't we give that credit to Patanjali then? So, yeah, again, it's complicated because it's like even Patanjali <coughs> in 400, sure. which is 800, 900 years after the Buddha, he was saying, this is an old, old, old system. Is that true? I don't know. But again, I think, our, you know, not that you were, but, you know, really arguing about the, the who's first, and I'm only going to believe who's first, and so if Patanjali was first, then I'm going to go with Patanjali. Yeah, so I don't know. Let's do it. Everybody ready? One in the back. That's okay. No, it's not. And I, I'm thank you for making that to asking that question. This is what makes Buddhism Buddhism is the wisdom. The idea of basically including Jainism, Ashtanga Yoga, to a certain degree, even what the Brahmins were doing to achieve moksha, all of that is what's called well, it has a lot of names, but the goal is in, in Buddhism they call it shamatha, calming down calming down. And so everybody, the name of the game was who can be the most calm to the point where you're so calm, you're liberated. And so the only game in town was 
calming your mind down to a still point of union. Nobody, and I don't want to say nobody, but in terms of the practice of yoga, it was not about having a penetrating, a penetrating understanding of this world. It was about getting out of this world. Fuck this world was the attitude of these people. And pardon my language, but that was their attitude. Screw this world. I'm out. Buddhism was like, yeah, good luck. See you, see you soon. Because it's literally, because the notion was, yeah, good, see you later. You'll be back. Buddhism, and I want to show you a, a first, you know, a prime example of it, but Buddhism is not about how do I mentally escape this world going into such a state of stillness that I'm impervious to fire. Based, you know, this was the idea. I could be so deep in meditation, so deep that you could light me on fire and I wouldn't even notice it because I would be so deep in meditation. That was the goal until the Buddha taught everybody how to have that level of mental imperturbability in a waking state. That's like, whoa, really? Whoa, like that calm and equanimous and quiescent of a mind, but while still moving around. Wow. You mean being in the world, but not of it. Wow. That's... So that's the idea. So thank you for that question, because yeah, you called it. It's not there, because it ain't there. That was not the goal. All right. So again, this is a originally from the Pali Canon, old text, uh, representative of the so-called Theravada tradition. But as I've said many, many times, from the Mahayana point of view, this is, not, this is just another sutra. Right? When, when all these sutras, and I mean all these all the Mahayana, all the Pranis, all of them. When they all came to China, the Chinese were like, whoa, what is all of this? And they made no distinctions of Theravada, this and that. It was all Buddhism. And I have the same attitude. So let's check it out. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in Shravasti in the Jetta's Grove, Anathapandika's Park. Now at that time, 500 Brahmins from diverse provinces were staying at Shravasti for some business or another. Then those Brahmins thought, this recluse Gotama, he describes purification for all four castes. Who is there among us able to dispute him about this assertion? Now on that occasion, a Brahmin student named Asalayana, star of the show, Asalayana, was staying in Shravasti. Young, shaven-headed, 16 years old, he was a master of the three Vedas with all of their vocabularies, liturgy and phonology, also etymology and the histories as a fifth. Skilled in philology and grammar, he was fully versed in natural philosophy and in the marks of a great man. Then the Brahmins thought, there is this young Brahmin student named Asalayana staying in Shravasti, young and da-da-da-da-da-da, fully versed in natural philosophy and in the marks of a great being. He will be able to dispute with the recluse Gautama about this assertion. So the Brahmins went to the Brahmin student Asalayana and said to him, Master Asalayana, this recluse Gautama describes purification for all the four castes. Let Master Asalayana come and dispute with the recluse Gautama about this assertion. When this was said, the Brahmin student uh, Asalayana replied, Sirs, the recluse Gautama is one who speaks the Dharma. Now, those who speak the Dharma are difficult to dispute with. I am not able to dispute with the recluse Gautama about this assertion. 
A second time the Brahmins asked him, and da 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 repeats the whole thing about how he was this young, young Brahmin, da 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 da. A third time they asked him, da da da, Master Asalyana, this recluse Gautama describes purification for all four castes, da da da. Let, um, uh, da, 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 da. When this was said, the Brahmin student Asalyana re- replied, Surely, sirs, I'm not getting through to you when I say the recluse Gautama is one who speaks the Dharma. Now, those who speak the Dharma are difficult to dispute with. I am not able to dispute with the recluse Gautama about this assertion. Still, sirs, at your bidding, I will go. Then the Brahmin student Asalyana went with a large number of Brahmins to the Blessed One and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he sat down at one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gautama, the Brahmins say thus, Brahmins are the highest caste. Those of any, any other caste are inferior. Brahmins are the fairest caste. Those of any other caste are dark. Only Brahmins are purified, not non-Brahmins. Brahmins alone are the sons of Brahma, the offspring of Brahma, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs of Brahma. What does Master Gautama say about that? The Buddha replied, Now, Asalayana, the Brahmin women are seen having their periods, becoming pregnant, giving birth, and giving suck. And yet those Brahmins, though born from the womb, say this, Brahmins are the highest caste. Brahmins alone are the sons of Brahma, the offspring of Brahma, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs of Brahma. So you see the Buddha's reply there. He's like, you claim to be born of Brahma, but the last time I checked, you're all vaginally born, right? <laughs> Asalyana replied, although Master Gautama says, says this, still the Brahmins think that the Brahmins are the highest caste, the fairest caste, da-da-da, heirs of Brahma. So then the Buddha replied, what do you think, Asalyana? Have you heard that in Yona and Kambodja, And in other outland countries, there are only two castes, master and slave, and that masters may become slaves and slaves may become masters. So I have heard, sir, then on the strength of what argument or with the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case thus say Brahmins are the highest caste, others are inferior, da-da-da-da-da, heirs of Brahma? Although, and this is his reply every time. Although the Master Gautama says this, the Brahmins still think that the Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahman. Uh, by the way, interesting historical point, they're referring there, Yona and Kambodja are actually referring to parts of what was called Bactria, which was a Greek province in what is today Pakistan. So Pakistan, Afghanistan, at the time of the Buddha, was actually Greek-speaking. They wrote in Greek. They had a Greek-structured government that was all left over from the conquest of Alexander the Great. And so this is a reference to those guys up north. You know, those guys up north, the Greeks, you know, master can become slave and slave can become master. So meaning their class is not fixed. And Asaliana says, yeah, but the Brahmins still say we're the best and heirs of Brahma. Okay, so what do you think, Asaliana? Suppose a kshatriya were to kill living beings. Take what is not given, misconduct himself in sensual pleasures, speak falsely, speak maliciously, speak harshly, gossip, be covetous, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong views. On the dissolution of the body, after death, 
Would only he be likely to reappear in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell, and not the Brahmin? Suppose a merchant, meaning a Vaisha or a Shudra, a worker, a Shudra were to kill living beings, harm living beings, da-da-da, hold wrong views, da-da-da-da-da. So for all of those, the other castes. On the dissolution of the body after death, would only he be likely to reappear in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell, and not a Brahmin? No, Master Gautama. Whether it be a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker, those of all four castes who, who kill living beings, da 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 hold wrong views, on the dissolution of the body after death are likely to reappear in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. Then on what strength, on the strength of what argument, or with the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case say the Brahmins are the highest caste, da-da-da, heirs of Brahma? Although Master Kanama says this, still the Brahmins think the Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. <laughs> All right, what do you think, Asalayana? Suppose a Brahmin were to abstain from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, from misconduct in sensual pleasures, from false speech, from malicious speech, from harsh speech, and from gossip, and were to be uncovetous, to have a mind without ill will, and to hold right views. On the dissolution of the body after death, would only he be likely to reappear in a happy destination, even in the heavenly worlds, and not a noble or a merchant or a worker? No, Master Gautama. Whether it be a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker, those of all four castes who abstain from killing living beings and hold right view on the dissolution of the body after death are likely to reappear in a happy destination, even in a heavenly world. Then on the strength of what argument or with the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case say Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma? Although Master Gautama says this, still the Brahmins think that Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. So what do you think, Asalayana? Is only a Brahmin capable of developing a mind of loving kindness towards, this, towards other people without hostility and without ill will and not a noble or a merchant or a worker? No, Master Gautama. Whether it be a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker, those of all four castes are capable of developing a mind of loving kindness towards all beings without hostility and without ill will. Then on the strength of what argument or with the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case thus say Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs to Brahma. Although Master Gautama says this, still the Brahmins think that Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. All right, what do you think, Asalayana? Is only a Brahmin capable of taking a loofah and bath powder and go to the river and wash off dust and dirt and not a noble or a merchant or a worker? Well, no, Master Gautama. Whether it be a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker, those of all four castes are capable of taking a loofah and bath powder going to the river and washing off dust and dirt. Then on the strength of what argument or the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case say Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma? Although, although Master Gautama says this, still the Brahmins think that Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. What do you think, Asalayana? Suppose a head-anointed noble king were to assemble here a hundred men of different birth and say to them, Come, sirs, let any here who have been born into a noble clan or of a Brahmin clan or a royal clan take an upper fire stick of sala wood, salala wood, sandalwood, or pandumaka wood and light a fire and produce heat. 
And also let any who have been born into an outcast clan, a trapper clan, a wicker worker's clan, a cartwright's clan, or a scavenger's clan, take up, take an upper fire stick made from a dog's drinking trough, from a pig's drinking trough, from a dustbin, or from a castor oil wood, and light a fire and produce heat. What do you think, Asaliyana? When a fire is lit and heat is produced by someone in the first group, would that fire have a flame, a color, and a radiance? And would it be possible to use it for the purposes of fire? Well, when a fire is lit and heat is produced by someone of the second group, that fire would have no flame, no color, and no radiance, and it would not be possible to use it for the purposes of fire? Well, no, Master Gautama. When a fire is lit and heat is produced by someone in the first group, that fire would have a flame, a color, and a radiance, and it would be possible to use it for the purposes of fire. And when a fire is lit and heat is produced by someone of the second group, that fire too would have a flame, a color, and a radiance, and it would be possible to use it for the purposes of fire. For all fire has a flame, a color, and a radiance, and it is possible to use all fire for the purposes of fire. Then on the strength of what argument or with the support of what authority do the Brahmins in this case say, Brahmins of the highest caste, heirs of Brahma? Although Master Gautama says this, still the Brahmins think Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. What do you think, Asalayana? Suppose a noble man were to cohabitate with a Brahmin woman, and a son was born from their cohabitation. Should a son born from a noble man and a Brahmin woman be called a noble after the father or a Brahmin after the mother? He could be called both, Master Gautama. What do you think, Kasalayana? Suppose a Brahmin man were to cohabitate with a noble woman and a son were to be born from their cohabitation. Should the son born from a Brahmin man and a noble woman be called a noble after the mother or a Brahmin after the father? He could be called both, Master Gautama. What do you think, Asalayana? Suppose a mare were to be mated with a male donkey and a, and a foal were to be born as the result. Should the foal be called a horse after the mother or a donkey after the father? It's a mule, Master Gautama, since it does not belong to either kind. I see the difference in the last case, but I see no difference in the two former cases. What do you think, Asalayana? Suppose there were two Brahmin students who were brothers, born of the same mother, one studious and acute, and one neither studious nor acute. Which of them would Brahmins feed first at a funeral feast, or at a ceremonial milk rice offering, or at a sacrificial feast, or at a feast for guests? On such occasions, Brahmins would feed first the one who was studious and acute, Master Gautama, for how could what is given to one who is neither studious nor acute bring great fruit? What do you think, Asaliyana? Suppose there were two Brahmin students who were brothers, born of the same mother, one studious and acute, but immoral and of bad character, and one neither studious nor acute, but virtuous and of good character. Which of them would the Brahmins feed first at a funeral feast or a ceremonial milk rice offering or a sacrificial feast or at a feast for guests? On such occasions, Brahmins would feed first the one who is neither studious nor acute, but virtuous and of good character, Master Gautama. For how could what is given to one who is immoral and of bad character bring great fruit? First, Asalayana, you took your stand on birth. 
But after that, you took your stand on scriptural learning. And then after that, you have come to take your stand finally on the very ground that, pu- that purification is for all four castes, as I describe it. When this was said, the Brahmin student Asalyana sat silent and dismayed, with shoulders drooping and head down, glum and without response. Knowing this, the Blessed One said to him, right, and so there's a story, but I want to stop there because the stories, we take a, we go off. But the Buddha just proved his point. Boom. And so I want to discuss it a little bit. Questions, ideas, comments? I, I, maybe I'm stupid. I don't see how he proved his point, actually. Bingo. So, so first he goes through this whole thing about birth and the having, like, you got a noble and a Brahmin, and it's like, well, it could go either way. And right there, he, the, the, the Asaliyana is admitting it's not in birth. So that's where the, where the Buddha says, um, let's see, where when he says, first to Salayani, you took your stand on birth. So his whole position was based on birth, that we're born of Brahma. And the Buddha was like, that's funny. Last time I checked, you all are vaginally born. And he's like, yeah, well... And so the Buddha's like, okay, so, and then he does the one about like if, if a noble and a Brahmin kid, and it's like, well, it could go either way. And it's like, okay, so being a Brahmin then is not based on birth. You've, you just told me that, Asalayana. Twice you told me that, right? So I'm paraphrasing, but this is the Buddha's argument, that you yourself have told me that being a Brahmin is not dependent on that. So then you took your stand on scriptural learning, and that was with the example you have two brothers, one studied, one not. Who gets fed first is, well, the smart one. And he's like, okay, great. So now being a Brahmin is that you're studied, you're learned. That's what makes you worthy of offerings. Not necessarily who's your mother was, right? Because your mother could be a noble and you could still be a Brahmin. So birth's gone. Ah, okay, it's resting on learning. But then, Asalayana, after that, you came to take your stand on the very ground that purification for, is for all crafts, as I describe it. Because at the end, when he was like, okay, you got two brothers, both Brahmins. One's smart, but he's, he's not very nice. He's, he's evil. The other one, he's not very smart, but he's at least a good guy. And finally, and then Asalayana says, boom, well, yeah, we would feed him first. And the Buddha says, boom, you just said it's based on virtuous act. That's what makes a, quote, Brahmin. So if Asalayana had said that they're equal because their birth is equal, then he would have been consistent the whole way through. Is that what you're saying? No. I mean, you know, this is an old text, and so we're dealing with it. I want to, great, we have enough time because I do want to get to the next little story. It's very interesting. But I think there's just this way, I mean, you could, there's a way to take this argument or conversation out of this context and just look at it in a lot of different ways in terms of, well, yeah, in terms of virtue and things like that. But maybe, no, let's not take it out. Let's keep it in the context of it. The first, this idea that, I mean, the main thing of the whole casteism, as I described it, is that it's all about your birth, the family that you were born into. That's the idea. And so through a number of different ways, the Buddha chops that up and says, you guys aren't consistent in that assertion. 
A, you say you're born a Brahma when that's not true. B, you say you're a Brahmin because you're born that way, even though you just said that you could have a mother that was a noble. or a mother. So get your story straight is what he's saying. And there's a way in which it's kind of like, okay, yeah, screw the birth thing. It's not that. It's about the fact that we're, you know, really smart and learned. We're the only ones that know the mantras. We're the only ones that know the rituals. We're learned. That's what makes us Brahmins. And so the Buddha gives this example of these two brothers. And it's like, well, he's learned, but he's virtuous. Therefore, he's worthy of getting fed first. And the Buddha's like, okay, so you just, you just said it then. It's not birth. It's not how smart you are. It's actually your virtuous acts. You just, boom, I rest my case, the Buddha said. And sure enough, Asaliyana was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I had my head up my ass. I thought Asaliyana was just putting them in order of, like, if you're born of a Brahmin mother and a Brahmin father, then you're a Brahmin of, the, of a higher order than someone who's born of a Brahmin father and a noble mother. And if you're you know, and so on. Like, there's an order within the Brahmins. I don't know exactly what the caste system looked at like at the time of the Buddha. I don't exactly know all the nuances of the caste system today. But apparently, if a Salayana represents the Brahmins of the day and represents the caste system, he says that if a mother and a father are of different castes, the child could be either way. And could be a, a noble or it could be a Brahmin. It could go either way. And the Buddha's whole point is, oh, okay, then it's not by birth. If it could go either way, then it's not on birth. And so that's where you get into these other criteria for being a Brahmin, being studious, and then ultimately, no, no, it's about being virtuous. And the Buddha's like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Everybody see the counter-argument? And by the way, historically, you should know that Buddhism has been celebrated as the religious tradition of India that sort of took down the caste system. The Buddha indeed accepted all men and women alike, all castes. The very notion of discriminating on caste was utterly un-Buddhist to do. Just, that was not... The whole Buddhist enterprise is about not seeing it this way, not discriminating this way, not seeing yourself as a being being reborn, all kinds of stuff. Any questions before I... Yeah. So, you say that, but Theravada tradition is very much about you need to be a monk and you need to be a man. Yes. So, there is still the same concept of you need to kind of climb up... Yeah. So, there's, you know, I always say this, you know, I'm trying to give you guys a broad spectrum of history, so I don't say just one thing. So, it's all going to be understood a lot of different ways. It's difficult to find the Buddha saying the thing about women, da 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 da. It's easy to find the institution of Buddhism saying that. What I mean to say is, is that it appears to me the Buddha came along and said, hey, you know what? This is lame. Liberation for everybody. And they, and they get this thing going. And then a bunch of people who were used to this system became Buddhists. And they were like, you know what we need? We need like some hierarchy here. How about a... And then maybe the man could be above the... Yeah, how about we put... So there's a way in which you could see 
the cultures and the values of India seeping back into Buddhism and saying like, okay, equality and moksha for everybody, that's great, but come on. So then you get, so, but again, you know, this is a very old religion, and so you get the rise of the Buddhist institution, the rise of patriarchy in Buddhism, where women, yes, cannot be liberated Buddhas, they have to be reborn as a man first, go through the whole process again and all that, but then you get this amazing Mahayana Bodhisattva revolution in which they are like, hey, everybody, we forgot the original message. What's with all this patriarchal nonsense? Let's get back to the non-discrimination, non-judgment, all of that. So Buddhism has gone through multiple revolutions, uh, sexual and otherwise, in, in that regard, where the initial movement of Buddhism seems to be one of liberation for everybody, and then it got closed back down, opened back up again, closed back down, open, and it's always in a process of that. So that's how I would explain the Theravada. Okay, last little bit. Fun little... So this is an interesting thing that where the sutra uh, very much uh, kind of reveals how old it is. Because there's a, a new argument that's going to take place here that is... It'll be fun to talk about uh, so just really quickly, so after Asalayana is like, wow, I see the error of my ways, the Buddha launches into this story. Once Asalayana, when seven Brahmin seers were consulting together in leaf huts in the forest, this pernicious view arose in them. Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. And there's the whole thing where heir, uh, what is it? Uh, Brahmins are the highest caste, the fairest caste, better than all the other castes. Children of Brahma, sons of Brahma, da, da, heirs of Brahma. So now the seer, Devala the Dark, who was a previous incarnation of the Buddha. So this is a past life of the Buddha story. And the Buddha is kind of telling it in the third person where he's like, okay, this one time when I was actually this Deva the Dark, a forest renunciant. Um, at that time, Devala the Dark had arranged his hair and beard and dressed in ochre-colored garments, put on his stout sandals, and taking up a staff made of gold, appeared in the courtyard of the seven Brahmin seers. Then, while walking up and down the courtyard of the seven Brahmin seers, uh, the seer Devala the Dark spoke thus, uh, where, have those worthy, where have those worthy Brahmin seers gone? Where have those worthy Brahmin seers gone? Then the seven Brahmin seers thought, who is this walking up and down in the courtyard of the seven Brahmin seers, uh, like a village lout speaking loudly, thus saying, where are those Brahmin seers? Where are those Brahmin seers? Um, let us curse him. So this is the Brahmins that want to curse this, the, the Buddha. Then the seven Brahmin seers cursed the seer Devala the dark thus, be ashes, vile one, be ashes, vile one. But the more the seven Brahmin seers cursed him, the more comely and beautiful and handsome the seer Devala the dark became. Then the seven Brahmin seers thought, our asceticism is in vain. Our holy life is fruitless. For formerly, when we cursed anyone thus, be ashes, vile one, be ashes, vile one, he always became ashes. But the more we curse this one, the more comely, beautiful, and handsome he becomes. Your asceticism is not in vain, sirs. Your holy life is not fruitless. But sirs, put away your hatred towards me. We have put away our hatred towards you, sir. Who are you? Have you heard of the seer Devala the Dark, sirs? Yes, sir. I am he, sirs. 
Then the seven Brahmin seers went to the seer Devala the dark and paid homage to him. Then he said to them, seer, Sirs, I hear, I heard that while the seven Brahmin seers were dwelling in the leaf huts of the forest, this pernicious view arose in them. Brahmins, Brahmins are the highest caste, heirs of Brahma. That is so, sir. But sirs, do you know if, so this is where it gets interesting. But sirs, do you know if the mother who bore you went only with a Brahmin and never with a non-Brahmin? No, sir. But sirs, do you know if your mother's mother back to the seventh generation went only with Brahmins and never with a non-Brahmin? No, sir. But sirs, do you know if the father who begot you went only with a Brahmin woman and never with a non-Brahmin woman? No, sir. But sirs, do you know if your father's father back to the seventh generation went only with Brahmin women and never with non-Brahmin women? No, sir. But sirs, do you know how the descent of an embryo comes about? Sir, we know how the descent of an embryo comes about. Here, there is a union of the mother and father, and the mother is in season, and the Gandharava is present. Thus, the descent of an embryo comes about through the union of these three things, the mother, the father, and the Gandharava. Then, sirs, do you know for sure whether that Gandharava is a noble or a Brahmin or a merchant or a worker? Sirs, we do not know for sure whether that Gandharava is a noble or a Brahmin, merchant, or a worker. That being so, sirs, then what are you? That being so, sir, we do not know what we are. Now, Asalayana, even those seven Brahmin seers, on being pressed in question and cross-questioned by the seer, seer Devala the Dark on their own assertion about birth, were unable to support it. But how shall you, on being pressed in question and cross-questioned by, by me now, on your assertion about birth, be able to support it? You, who rely on the teacher's doctrines, are not even fit to be their spoon holder. When this was said, the Brahmin student of Salayana said to the Blessed One, Magnificent Master Gautama, Magnificent Master Gautama, from today let Master Gautama remember me as a lay follower who has gone to, gone to him for refuge from this life. Good. Well. So, funny thing about, do you know if your mother only went with a Brahmin? We need Jerry Springer to come out with a DNA <laughs> test. Because that's what they're talking about. They're saying, do you know for sure your mother was a Brahmin? Do you know for sure your mother's mother was a Brahmin? And there's a way now with our, you know, uh, what can I say? You know, we have this strong belief or whatever in DNA and the whole 23andMe thing. And so there's a way in which our modern mentality counteracts what the Buddha is actually arguing. Because we actually do have ways to find out if our parents were Brahmins all the way seven generations back. Kind of. The Buddha's point still remains the same, but I think there's a way in which modernity has kind of undercut his argument a little bit there. One last point. Uh, we have actually a nice little amount of time, uh, but one last point on the Gandharava. So this is a Indian idea. It's a Buddhist idea. It's just until, I don't know when India... Uh, kind of got on board with Western science, but for a very long time, this was the, the view. You had the mother and the father. You had sperm and an egg. Everybody knew about that forever. But in India, they believed that there was a Gandharava. And a Gandharava is the... Well, this is a little, a little late for the Dharma talk, but 
In Buddhism, of course, they don't believe in a Atman. So now we're above here. Um, so an Atman is a self or soul or essence. And Brahmins and all of this, and to a certain degree, all of these people were trying to get in touch with their Atman, their true self, their essence. The Buddha came along and he said, actually, it's Anatman. There's no such thing as a self or a soul or an essence. Surprise! You're actually the momentary coalescence of five elements, five aggregates, right? Form, sensation, perceptions, mental conditioning in your consciousness. So Buddhism is very different than all kind of Indian religion with this radical idea of Anatman. No self. Because again, everybody else was looking for the true Atman. And it's like, if you could have union with your true Atman, if you could pray to and worship your true Atman, I mean, that's what it was about. It was about, you do the meditation to find your true self. The Buddha went in and he was like, oh, guess what? There's not a true self. There is a constantly changing, constantly changing five aggregated elements that when these constantly changing five aggregating elements get together, this stubborn illusion of a singular self arises. And that stubborn illusion of a singular self goes and starts suffering. It's, it's a mess. So the idea here is, is that there's no soul or self or essence to be reborn. That's Buddhism. But the thing about that, though, it, it, is this, is that, that when they say that there's no Atman, they really mean that. And so the way that they see it is, and this is the way that, that I've described it in the past, an hour, two hours ago, a particular configuration of five skandhas walked in the room clinging to the notion of being Michael has gone through all kinds of changes and every moment, one idea to the next, one bodily sensation to the next, one mental conditioning to the next, bumped each successive me into existence, right? And what the Buddha is saying is, is that from this moment to 12 minutes ago, to an hour ago, to two hours ago, to three hours ago, there has never been an essential Michael, a self, a soul, or an essence there's a karma train or a karma chain. Bumping karma, bumping karma. Oh, here it is, happening again. So is everybody following that Buddhist view of this? The idea, though, is, is that, so there's no soul or Atman in what I just described, right? But there is a continuity. There is a continuity from there to there, two hours ago, hour ago, now. There's continuity, Undeniable continuity, right? So what happens in Buddhism is they say, yeah, yeah, there's no Atman, there's no self or soul that gets reincarnated, but when you, when this momentary, constantly changing momentary coalescence of these five aggregates, when this breaks apart, there is this karmic, mm, like, uh, trajectory, a karmic trajectory and they call it a Gandharava. 
So it's not a self or a soul. And I, again, I need to like, I really want to drive this thing, this idea home. There's no self or soul out two hours ago, hour ago, now, moving into the next. But there's continuity and there's me and memory and pain and suffering and dukkha and all of that, right? What Buddhism is saying is, is that when this dies, the, the karmic trajectory of the energy will keep going, just like it's been going. It's been going. It's, it moved into this room. It's talking to you now, coming at you. And then that karmic energy will be disembodied from this, fly through a bardo, this ethereal plane between existences, for up to 49 days, seven, seven days. And then there will be a man and a woman in coitus, the man, the, the woman will be uh, menstruating, or not menstruating, it'll be a period, he'll be, she will be fertile, and there will be an insemination, and at that very moment, the Gandharava will fly in and embody the fetus. It takes three. It takes the, the sperm, the embryo, and then this Gandharava flying in. Then that Gandharava embodies that being and then keeps going and will have a life. And if I were a clinging person, a non-Buddhist, or if I were not being a good Buddhist and clinging, I would say, I've been reborn. I've been reborn in India. I got reborn in India, wherever, from that Gandharava that flew out, right? And there's a way in which I, I'm, I can do that. Buddha says, yeah, you can do that. You can attach to that karmic energy that went to produce that child, you can attach to that the same way I can attach to the two hours ago me, hour ago me, and the same way I can attach to the, the, the now me. Is everybody following my example here? So there's a way in Buddhism where they say, well, yeah, there's still like energy and karma and it keeps going, but it's up to you to attach and cling to that as yourself. So it's like Buddhism still has reincarnation, but then doesn't have reincarnation. Because if you're enlightened, you realize there's nothing to be reincarnated. Right. Sweet. Is there a conscious? Yeah, so this, these five skandhas form, which is just this is form, this is form, matter, physical matter, atoms, whatever. Sensations. And these are just positive and negative. These are not like, oh, I'm hot or I'm cold. These are not interpreted. This is just more, please. No! It's very, like, very rudimentary sensations of positive and negative reactions. Pleasure and, and like, displeasure. That then become more finely understood as, I'm too hot, or I'm this, but it begins with, I don't like this. Oh, I like this. So positive and negative sensations. So you are your bodily form. You are your positive and negative sensations. You are your perceptions, whatever you're perceiving, meaning dividing up, like, oh, look, a table and a bowl and chair and books and all of that, right? So the perceptions... You are your physical form, you are your negative and positive sensations, and you are the unique way that you divide this world up to understand it. 
Now you've been conditioned, like we've all been conditioned, to see things with four legs like this and call it a chair. And you know, we all share a language, so we've been conditioned. But the unique way you divide this world up, your unique perceptions, that's what makes you you. Mental conditioning. This is like a, a emotional responses to things. You build up a reaction to things. You have like a, you get bit by a dog as a young child and you just have like a, you don't like dogs. That's a mental conditioning. You are the accumulation of all your mental conditionings. All your current perceptions and the way you divide the world up, all your positive negative reactions, and of course the bodily organs that are having those sensations to be perceived as emotional responses to things. Sometimes number four is uh, translated as volition. I know. Terrible. As more kind of a karmic. Terrible. No? Okay. <laughs> the problem with volition, which is to translate samskara, the problem with volition is that it's, it, it's one step too far. The idea of conditioning of this samskara is that the ideas that I'm having are actually being sort of stimulated and generated by the previous thoughts I had. So there's a way in which like my mind's just kind of out of control and these ideas are just springing off one after the next, after the next, after the next. Mm -hmm. So because of my conditioning, it causes a volitional act. So what they like to do in Buddhism is talk about this as volition because they like to take volition out of your hands and it's like you're rolling down a hill in terms of consciousness. Now there's a way to stop doing that, but the reason why I don't like volition is because again, it's that extra step of conditioning. Whereas what this actually means is the conditioning, not the fact that you keep doing the same thing because of that conditioning. Yep. That, that sounds like um, uh, a denial of, uh, it sounds like determinism, like, the, like lack of free will. It is in the sense that, though this is where this all got started, somebody asked me about consciousness. Vijnana is the fifth one. This is consciousness. This is the ever-turning wheel of ideas that are being sort of on a springboard from the last idea and a springboard from the last idea. And in that sense, yes, most of our thinking is totally determined. Like, the ideas we have are not our own. It's like, you know, I went and got a slice of pizza a little earlier. Did I want that? Or was I, like, shown a bunch of signs and symbols of pizza that made me hungry and then made me go, ooh, yeah, pizza sounds good. I'll go get it. I've been, I've been conditioned. I've been samskarad by this. And then I think it's my own free will. But there's something else in Buddhism called chitta. Now, chitta is not the conditioned Vijnana consciousness mind. Chitta is something more subtle. And I often describe it in these classes as when you have that, like, you know, somebody had earlier when, like, oh, I, oh, wait. Like, you get a little flash of insight, or you're like, wait a minute, if he said this, and, I, and that, that means when you have, like, curiosity, and it's hard to, to you know, separate conditioned ideas from what are these in, like instances of enlightenment in a way, but 
this whole Zen tradition of Buddhism is about trying to point at citta, point at the, the mind that has the potential to be a Buddha. Not the mind that wants pizza. That mind has no hope at Buddhahood, right? But so there's the conditioned thinking mind, but then there's this other aspect of mind called, called citta. And then there's bodhicitta, the enlightenment citta that we have. And again, this is where I say those instances of curiosity or, or where you have an insight, where you're like, oh my God, I don't even know where that idea came from. Like, that, okay, now that's what we're talking about. And so Buddhism, it does sort of straddle free will and determinism. And it's, I, so I often talk about Buddhism like this. There's a spectrum, and over here you have a rock. And over here, you have a Buddha. And we, mankind, are kind of right in between a rock and a Buddha. <laughs> and what I mean by that, what I mean by that is that a rock in the world is 100% determined by its environment. Meaning it has no agency of its own. If the earth starts shaking and it starts rolling down the hill, the rock cannot go like, oh, I'm going to put on the brakes. The rock is, sub is completely subject to its environment, completely determined. You, yeah? Buddhas, on the other hand, are 100% undetermined. Unconditioned, however you want to say it. They are not conditioned or determined at all. We human beings are sort of like, eh, like we're being pushed in by our environment, being you know, told to go eat pizza and do all of these things. So we are like a rock. And when sometimes when the earth starts shaking, we just start rolling too. Like, and we just go with things as they are. But we have in us this possibility to not be determined but to actually be determining. So a rock is not determining. It's determined. Buddhas are not at all determined. They are 100% determining to the point where they supposedly fly, change reality. They're that not determined. Again, we are sort of betwixt and between these two where we have aspects of Buddhahood but aspects of rockhood and there's just ways in which we, through the practice, we recognize where we're being like a rock or when we're being like a Buddha, basically. And there's a way in which, you know, if you kind of want to think of it in a certain way, you know, animals, the so-called lesser births down here, the idea is, is that animals are a little more determined by their environment. Meaning most of the time, most of the animals will just, if the food's nice over there and the food's lousy over there, they're going to all go over there. Rare is it an animal that's like, yeah, it looks nice over there, but I'm, I'm good. <laughs> it's actually, it's the human being that for, I mean, even just take the very old practice of fasting. What a crazy thing for an animal to do. Willingly forego food. I don't think or know of any other animal that would willingly forego food. In fact, most other animals seem to be all about the food. 
all about sex and food. We seem to be these animals that can choose not to have sex and then sublimate the sexual energy into something else. We can choose not to eat and sublimate that energy, the tapas, into something else. Very interesting to be able to choose, right? So that's what we're talking about. And so, all right, I mean, I'll just leave it with that idea. That, like, meditate on that idea. That, that, that choice is nirvana, right, in that sense, is the, is the liberation. It's when you are not exercising choice, right, that you're like a rock. Did you finish everything you were going to say about? You asked a question about the the, the thing that. Oh yeah, I never finished that. I never finished that. So the Gandharva, most schools of thought think that this vijnana, this ever turning wheel of consciousness, when this dissipates, when the form goes away, there's no more bodily organs, so there's no more sensations. Therefore, there's no more perceptions. Depending on the school of thought, when you die, this goes away too. Some schools think that these both are the Gandharava. A little bit of your past conditioning with that last. So this is very important, and I have just enough time to mention it. So I mentioned that upon the dissolution of this, these five skandhas, the vijnana or consciousness, is sort of said to like pop out and go traversing this bardo. So if you've never heard this, it, it's, it's interesting to know about. Buddhism, in particular Tibetan Buddhism, talks about two bardos, uh, the little bardo and the great bardo. So this bardo is a ethereal plane or a, um, the word sort of means a rigpa or a gap and what you can think of, and actually there's three bardos, but I'll just talk about these two. Every night, you, when you fall asleep, there's a period of unconsciousness before you start dreaming. That period in which you're not thinking. <laughs> that period is a little bardo. And every night, we go through the little bardo, then wake up in a dream, have the dream, go through the bardo again, maybe go into another dream or through the bardo and then we wake up. When we die, we enter the great bardo. And what the Buddhist tradition says, in particular the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they say that every night is practice for the great bardo. And what I mean by that is, is that to particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, the practice is a visualization, and there's different kinds you can do, but it's the visualization of an object or a letter, Sanskrit letter sometimes, and you hold on to it so that you go through the bardo and move directly into a dream state and you don't lose consciousness. So you're sitting there in your bed and you're like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it, and now I'm dreaming. And, I hold, and then I'm still dreaming and then I hold it and then I wake up. And at no point have I lost Vijnana. If you get good at that every night to where you can cruise into the bardo or through the bardo right into the dream state, they say it's practice for when you die.
because you're gonna go through the craziest bardo you've ever imagined. In fact, if you want to conceive of it, all that Tibetan tantric Buddhist art with all the flames, necklaces of skulls, visions of skulls, demons, they actually say that that's what we see when we die and go through the bardo. And that for most of us, when we die and then pass through the bardo and wake up and see that, we freak out so hard that we basically go into some, I mean, fetal state, literally. And then we wake up and we try to figure out what happened for 40, 50 years, if we're lucky. So did everybody catch that? So you die, the Vijnana pops out. If you've been practicing every night, you'll be good at holding on to your consciousness. If you haven't been practicing every night, for 49 days you're going to traverse through hell, basically, be so freaked out by it that when you get reborn, you won't remember anything of your past life. But if you practice every night through the little bardo and you get good at holding on to your consciousness, they say that you'll be able to cruise right through that bardo the 49 days, and they say that you can even be like, ooh, that looks nice down there, Gandharava right into there. You can choose where you'll be reborn. Okay, this you that you're talking about, that's the same, that's the Vijnana, that's the consciousness. Yes. When you say you go to Bardo, you're talking about the consciousness that just popped out of this body. Yes, and what I want to keep coming back to is my analogy of me from two hours ago, me from three hours ago. I can cling to that me. Buddha's like, yeah, go ahead, cling all you want. And there's a way that I, Michael Owens, am not enlightened, so I do cling to that as me. And what this is saying is that insofar as that's you, that's you. But insofar as that's not you, that's not you either. Did everybody follow that? But what Buddhism is saying, from a Buddhist point of view, from a, from a, uh, from a point of view of compassion, what they're saying is, is that the reason why you should be good to this body, the reason why you should be virtuous and all of that is out of compassion for that being that is going to inherit all this karma. You can cling to that as you if you want. Again, cling all you want. But the idea is, is that the reason why a Buddhist would want to hope for a better rebirth is out of compassion for that being. Not because it's me, per se. Right? Because you know, at least logically from a Buddhist point of view, you know your karma is going to go and affect a being in the future. That's how it works in this kind of world system. So it's this idea of like, oh, well then I'll just, you know, screw it. I'll just let myself go, do heroin all day, and then just, you know, screw, screw you, dude. You ate me anyways. That's not very compassionate from a Buddhist point of view. In the modern setting, it's easy to stay, take a step back and think about it generalized setting of this I guess uh, where you know yes what you do has an impact uh, you know on mm. others lives even after you die and mm -hmm. all that would that still fit with the whole model or is it doesn't break apart would it fit with what with this with this model or does it just break apart like this notion of like having this single consciousness mm -hmm. being like for 49 days but again, don't, back. <laughs> with this Vijnana, don't think of it as a single consciousness. Think of it as a conscious structure 
that gives rise to another conscious structure, that gives rise to another conscious structure. And so it's conscious structure one to the next to the next. But it has to be a chain. It can't be like a... It's a, a it's a chain like, you know, this hits that, hits that, hits that, hits that. But, but you know, there's a lot of sutras in which the Buddha is like, but don't think this is... A, don't call this an atma. Don't do the thing you want to do, which is, oh, I found it then. I found the atman. It's called a vijnana. Buddha's like, no, 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 stop doing that. Stop doing that thing where you want to reduce everything to an essential element. You all, you're always looking for your atoms, and you're looking for your protons, and you're looking for your quarks, and you're, looking, you're always looking for the, the smallest. And, and, and I, I say this, it's an illness. The Buddhist kind of says it's an illness. He says it's suffering. I say it's sort of a mental illness, that desire to keep breaking down with the feeling that, oh, and when I arrive at the, the base, I can finally rest. No. Yes. <laughs> so the Vishnana yeah. is shaped by the Gandharava. The Gandharava is a tendency or they are interchangeable? I don't know what a Gandharava is. So Gandharava means smoke eater incense eater. And there was this idea of these heavenly musicians. They played musical instruments and you could burn incense to them and they would make your house nice, pleasant. I have yet to find a good book or a good source to find out how the, the um, embryo baby thing and the heavenly musician how they are the same word, how the I don't know where this comes from. I mean, I, haven't, I have yet to find a good source that deals with the Gandharava. So I don't know what it is. I don't know what they think it is. I just know that it is the, the carrier or the vehicle of the consciousness through the bardo. Okay, so carrier or vehicle, that's what I'm looking for. It's like, a, it's like a container or a pathway or that which creates that impact that you're describing that carries those conscious moments along. Yeah, but it all gets so tricky from a Buddhist point of view because you don't want, you can't have a container, you can't have a static thing, or the wisdom is to not search for such a thing in that way. Questions? Any other questions about any of this stuff? Yep. I mean, at a certain point, I mean, there's the idea with Buddhism is like there's no, uh, there's no experiencer of the experience. There's experience, but there's no experiencer. There's that, then there's no, you know, then yeah, then this uh, Vijnana guy, everything is just like uh, another sort of, you know, fiction. Exactly. Yes, yes, but I always remember this idea of like these kind of this conventional truth, ultimate truth, and that you don't want to lie just on this ultimate truth idea, like everything's empty, there's no Atman, all of that. Because as, as nice as that is, as, sorry, not as nice, as easy as that is to say, we are still beings clinging to the body. We are still believing in all of this. And so there's a way in which Buddhism is operating on like, oh, you still, you still cling to the self? You still believe in the self? Okay, I got all this for you. Oh, you figured out there's no self? Okay, I got all this for you. Yeah. But, it's, but Buddhism never says like, this is ultimate and you should only be here. It's actually about understanding the relationship between the two so that you understand how conventional reality is appearing out of this ultimate realm. 
you always actually want to be in relationship with both, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you pick the tools that you want out of the toolbox. They got a crap load of tools in Buddhism, and if you're not into a bunch of them, which I'm not, it's just not interesting, and I don't really give a shit. What exactly. They think about it. I mean, it might be cool for somebody, like you said, the eighty-four thousand doors. <laughs> yep, like, yep. I need like five or six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just need one good one. I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Shitty and, mm. but is there, I mean, how did, why would, would they, they were just, the whole point of it was always like liberation. It was, uh, yeah, so yeah. Why would you want to do it unless it's like, you would want to do it, you would only do it, you would want to do it, and you would only do it for two reasons basically. One, a better rebirth, so a uh, richer family, better location, Southern California, whatever it is, right? So better. <laughs> Rebirth, or you do it to get the heck out of here. Okay. Meaning, meaning, you know, I don't know how familiar people are with this idea of Gnostic or Gnosticism, but there's a general notion that you could apply to a lot of forms of religion called Gnosticism, and, the, and there's a lot of criteria for this worldview, but the main Gnostic worldview is that this world sucks. This world is not fun at all, and there that we are from a different realm. We are spirits of light trapped here. We are spirits in a material world or, or something to that effect. That's where you get a kind of general dualistic view that this world sucks, but we're not from here. There's an aspect of us that's from a better place and we can get there. Buddhism is, again, and I said this earlier, it's like not about trying to get there, and it's also not about trying to get a rebirth. It's actually about trying to make this very moment not suffering. Not, not suffering next life, not next <laughs> suffering somewhere else, but actually right here, right now, but not suffering. And that's where for me, when I first found Buddhism so many years ago, I was like, that sounds, that sounds right to me. You know, because all of these other, because I studied religion. I've already told everybody this story, but I studied religion, so I studied the whole gambit of them. And I was like, oh, wow, everybody seems to want to get out of here. Christians want out of here. They think it sucks. The, all these, everybody thinks it sucks here, and everybody wants out of here. And then this Buddhist come along, and I don't know. There's no getting out. <laughs> there's this complicated idea of rebirth and not really being reborn. But there's this potential to not suffer right here through meditation, through the practice. And it works. And it works it for me. And it can be fun. Well, also the, other, the main reason, not the main reason, but one of the reasons why I wanted to bring all the Mahayana stuff into here and get away from the Theravada is because Theravada says, if you're not going to meditate, you might as well go home. Mahayana is like, no, no, no. Meditation's for these people. They love meditating. Great. But there's other ways. There's this discourse, what's called jnana yoga, jnana exercise. There's selfless service to others. There's bhakti, devotion to a statue. There's just all kinds of ways. So it's another thing I love about Buddhism is that it's like, oh, meditation's not for you? Well, guess what? You don't have to meditate. Or I should put it a different way. There's other ways to meditate. Right? You can jogging, like, or that kind of like more physical runner's high type stuff 
all, you know, again, there's no rules in Buddhism about it. We're trying to achieve a sense of peace, non-suffering. And if you do it by jogging and you get to these mental states of freedom, liberation, de- I, mean, I have a friend, actually, it's a friend I used to translate with. He was an avid jogger. And we had great conversations about it. I was like, oh, wow, it sounds like you're getting into dhyana. And he was like, yeah, I guess so. Because he also, he didn't like seated meditation, but he, he could, he'd, run, he'd run forever and get into these dhyanic states. You know, and, and I think it's only in some really, you know, conservative, strict schools that they would be like, oh, no, that's, that's, not, that's not Zazen. That's not Dhyana. Not, not, from my opinion, no way. To hear people describe runner's high, where it's like, oh, yeah, I'm outside of my body, and da 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 it's like, oh, that's Dhyana. Okay, I've kept you all here long enough. We did it again. We went through the whole thing. Thank you all so much. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, uh, new sutra next week. I don't know what it's going to be because I wasn't even sure if I was even going to get to this.